I'd like to talk about this evening is a meditative spirit. The desire to measure and evaluate things, the temptation to judge things, are probably the most universal, shared, and deeply rooted of human patterns. It would be exceedingly difficult, probably, to find a human being who has never been at any time in their life, who has never known what it means to be in the power of the judge. Judgment has a twofold purpose for us. Evaluation and measurement has a twofold purpose for us. One is that it secures the center of I. And the other is that it makes things known to us. It makes things familiar to us. And so, of course, it is no mystery at all that the mind tends to be so in love with its labels. It is no surprise at all to us to find this mind's consuming passion to have a description for everything, unasked for, unneeded, uncalled for, often totally irrelevant, mostly unnecessary. And yet, we see our mind, we've probably wondered at times why the mind really wants so much to be full, to be occupied and to know things so well. We know things by our labels because our labels have authority for us. They have authority of the past. They have authority of association. Sometimes our labels and our judgments carry the voices or speak with the voices of countless authorities in our past. They are the judgments of our parents, our teachers, our peers, our parents, our friends, our religious guides, they have become our own. And so, of course, this twofold desire to make things known and to preserve the center is, of course, transferred into this path and this journey. It would be really rather surprising if it wasn't. And it's interesting that the judge tends to assume the same authority in this journey as it has elsewhere in our lives. And it tends to apply very similar standards. Now, we come in this journey and actually there isn't such a thing as progress or more enlightened or 
higher, that these concepts actually don't mean anything at all in this journey. And yet we see how much the mind really wants to make both this journey known to us and we want to have the safety of knowing ourselves in it. And how do we do that except, of course, by evaluating? By evaluating and by judging. That is how we know how our path is going. That is how we know how we are. Consuming desire. So how do we measure depth in spirituality? This is, I think, probably an interesting reflection. How do you measure depth in this journey? How do you know you've got anywhere? How do you know you're any better off now than you were 20 days ago? Maybe not. How do we know? How do you measure the worth or the value of what you do in a single sitting? How do you know whether it has any meaning? Now, uh, obviously we are not willing often to allow this to be unknown. Obviously very wise advice here would be to say, let this be unknown. But we are often not too happy with that. We want to know. And we can tell that we want to know by how much our minds are at work, evaluating and judging. Often, I think, we do tend to measure, but most people are very quiet about this, I must say. This is one thing, don't talk about in interviews or groups or anything else. This is the sort of secret dialogue, the inner dialogue, I think, that goes on. But I think that there is an inclination of many people to measure their path and themselves in this path by a number of different yardsticks. And I have sensed this. Um, one of those yardsticks, of course, that people tend to use for measuring depth is the number of insights. The number of insights. <laughs> this tends to be one measurement. How many insights have I had or not had and how deep have they been and how transforming have they been and how important have they been? Another measurement is states of experience. States of experience. States of calmness, states of peace, states of joy, states of sensitivity, and of course the opposites of those states. States of confusion, states of chaos, states of anger, states of greed. These two are very popular measurements. One can tell by looking at people's faces during a day, whether it's a good day or a bad day. <laughs> and what's happening on a good day, of course, are the more popular states of experience and the more popular <laughs> insights than what is happening usually on a bad day. Of course, the less popular one. Now we have another way of measuring our journey and ret retreats tend to be the time when we kind of take stock, like taking inventory of our spiritual life. Now how we've done over the past year, 
Retreats tend to be a kind of yardstick of progress or of failure on this journey. Especially the last days of a retreat are often interesting days because these are often the days when some comparing comes in. So I'm coming to the end of 20 days. How does it compare to the last longer retreat I did? How has it been different? Has it been better? Has it been worse? Has it been deeper or less deep? And this is often a time when we also take inventory of this retreat. And often the mind works in rather predictable ways. It looks for progress by certain signposts. How many things have I got over? Am I going to be able to leave behind? Have I finished with? How many things am I still dwelling upon? How many things have I understood or not understood? How much am I going to take away with me? How much have I finished? Often on the basis of these thoughts, we draw, of course, then certain conclusions about depth or about regression. Needless to say, all of these measurements and all of these conclusions are totally unreal. The spiritual life, the meditative spirit, is not something that can be measured either by experience or by insight. I think this is hard for us to accept. I think our minds often do so work in such a materialistic way that we really do want to <coughs> possess progress, possess achievements. It's very difficult for us to accept no destinations, no arrival points, no measurements. In the, some years ago in India, I went to Rishikesh and see there's something like a sadhu convention there. And you know, there's this street where people set up the little stalls, sadhus, you know, the wandering ascetics. They kind of set up stalls, everybody beside each other, like shops, but not shops, they're not selling anything. But they set up stalls to show what they can do. So, you know, one stall will be a sadhu sitting on a bed of thorns with a little sign saying, I've been sitting on a bed of thorns for seven years. And the next door will be another sadhu lying on a bed of nails with a little sign saying, you know, I've been on a bed of nails for three years. And then next door to him will be a sadhu standing on one leg. It says, you know, I've been standing on one leg for 39 months. You know, next door to him will be another sadhu. And, you know, it's this whole street. It's like a gathering point, you know, of show and tell. You know, like, look what I can do. And it's very easy, of course. You know, I mean, I, when I saw that, you know, in one way I was really impressed. But, you know, I thought, boy, these guys really do something here. You know, I can't imagine hanging around in one leg for 39 months. <laughs> but then, on the other hand, you think, well, you know, of course, who needs to know? You know, really, what difference is it? I mean, if I could stand on my leg for 39 months, 
would I want to set up a stall and tell the world? You know? I mean, what does it actually mean? But, you know, it's easy, of course, to feel sort of, you know, a little bit questioning of this sort of behavior. On the other hand, it is also very easy for us to do very similar things in much more subtle ways. You know, like the conversations we've rehearsed when we go home, you know, about what I saw on my retreat, or what I didn't see on my retreat. The conversations we've already had and rehearsed, you know, and have them down to a fine art. Some of you may already have your tapes ready for the group meeting tomorrow about what I did or didn't do on my retreat. So this is very important to see the way that we tend to feel somehow measure ourselves by what we can show, by what we can tell, by what we can produce, by by what is tangible to us. And what is tangible to us? What is tangible to us is what we can name. If we cannot name it, we cannot know it. And so when we name or when we cling to the name, then what we do is we reduce ourselves to ever inhabiting this world of what we know of what we can know by our labels. And certainly one of the great treasures of this life, of this journey, is its mystery, is its unknown, is the subtlety, the intangible, that which we cannot point to and say, this is mine, or this is who I am. The spiritual life, any depth, if there is such a word, can never be based upon states of experience or labels by the presence or absence of difficulties. It's not something that can be measured. On one level, spiritual life can only ever be known by our capacity to live it. Another level of spiritual life can never be known at all because it follows our own journey. We'll follow no familiar path. We've never made it before. We've never done it before. There's no map for us. On that level, we can never know it. We can never know what the next step is, what the next unfoldment is. On another level, the spiritual journey, our inner sense of traveling upon it can only ever be known to us by our capacity to live it. To me, deepening the spiritual life has nothing to do with its experiences or states. It's that point in our lives when our lives become a visible expression of understanding, of compassion and wisdom. When there's really no separation between understanding and our living of it when there's a merging of wisdom and action, when there's a spontaneity and organicness in how we live, that our lives become a visible expression of what we honor. Insights do make a difference, but they really are significant only in the sense that they touch every area of our lives, 
our livelihoods, our relationships, our choices and directions. To me, sometimes it's very sad when people, <coughs> you know, are on, they're on a retreat and they come to great, great sensitivity and openness and understanding and compassion. And then up comes this weird voice of anxiety, this very strange voice of anxiety that asks this very odd question, how do I maintain it? You know, we've probably all asked this question at some point in our practice. How do I maintain this? <laughs> the moment we ask that question, we've missed the point entirely. We have missed the point entirely. What are we going to maintain? You know, we're going to try to maintain slow walking. We're going to try and maintain our breath in each and every situation. We're going to try and maintain a state of mind. The moment that we begin to ask questions about maintaining, actually, we have in that moment just missed the point. But we shouldn't get it back again. Because that voice, of course, is the, the, that, you know, that clinging of the center that really wants to say, aha, uh-huh, this is something I have and this is something I can keep. But I think inwardly we know that this is not the nature of seeing clearly that we see clearly only when we see clearly. We don't see clearly by trying to see clearly or by thinking this is something we can maintain. We see clearly through supporting seeing clearly, through the energy, the effort, the value we give to it. And then, of course, so what the follow-on from that question of how do I maintain it is that sometimes people leave a retreat and they feel they lose their insight. This is so common. I lost my insight. Or, you know, sometimes it feels like an immediate loss, you know, like the moment you get on the bus. And so, (laughs) more often it's a kind of process of gradual erosion, that over a period of time I lose my insight. And then we hit bottom, and then when we hit bottom, the answer seems, the other, the voice comes up again and says, time to do another retreat, because that's where insight lies. And I need to go and do another retreat so I can recharge my insight. Of course, this whole process of erosion is really unnecessary. And I, I think it is really important for us to ask in our lives, if it happens for us, why it happens. Because it is unnecessary. Insight is not geographically located. You know, there's not more insight that Gaia has in Newton Abbott. You know, there's not more insights that Gaia has than on the beach. You know, what is going on in that process of erosion? And, you know, this is such a common story that I think it is really important for it to be challenged. Certainly, attention and concentration is supported by silence and by time and by practice. And certainly these are supportive factors for deepening understanding, but are they the crucial factors? No, they are not the crucial factors. The crucial factors for deepening in insight and for the living of insight is willingness. Simply that, willingness. Willingness expressed through love of being clear. If you love being clear, you have no interest in being confused. If you love connectedness, you have no interest in being distracted. If you uh, 
love sensitivity, you have no interest in consumption, in avoidance. Willingness. Willingness. This is what makes a difference on a retreat. This is what makes a difference in our lives. There's no willingness on a retreat. What would happen? What would happen? We could all spend our time, you know, communally, silently, sharing in fantasies in this room. You know, there are no psychic spies in the meditation room that knows whether you're paying attention or not paying attention. I have absolutely no idea most of the time what you're doing on your cushion. And it's not my business. It's your choice after all. It's your choice. These are the choices we make in our lives. It is willingness that is transforming. Your willingness to pay attention inwardly is your willingness to care for yourself, to care for your well-being, to care for the well-being of the world around you. No one can give that to you. No one can take it away from you. Willingness is a crucial factor. As long as we regard insight as a state or an object that we possess as something we have achieved, we will lose it or we will seem to lose it. But we only seem to lose it. You cannot lose insight. But we seem to lose it. And then, of course, people get into this awful kind of state of, you know, these like old yogi reunions, you know, where they get together and kind of look back on past retreats that are like war veterans. You know, <laughs> remember the retreat of 89 when I had that dramatic insight into impermanence. And I remember in 85 when I was so high, and in 91, you know, there was that big insight into emptiness. You know, this like almost as if insight is something we can collect and treasure in a photo album, but this is not true. Insight that is not lived, it is not lost, but what happens, of course, it becomes buried. Buried under the weight of old passions and old tendencies because insight is not given any life. Instead, the life is given to tendencies and to patterns, into desire and aversion. Because of that, insight that is not, does not have the breath of willingness, that is not given life to willingness, loses that kind of energy. So then sometimes when we get into those positions where we feel we've lost something, whether it is here or whether it is outside of a retreat, when we feel that we've lost clarity or lost attention or lost some insight or lost something, I think really the question that's more important for us to ask ourselves is how much have we in that, this moment, how much are we willing to live in accord with what we understand to be true and to be valuable and to be worthy. We have spoken a lot about insight over these days and mentioned that insight is rarely a kind of you know, dramatic experience. Sometimes it is. Most often insight is a very quiet deepening and understanding. It doesn't have any signposts. Sometimes we're not aware that anything has changed or taken place. Sometimes until we go into situations that have previously been charged for us, difficult, and we go and there's no charge. You know, we think, well, you know, first we're kind of taken aback, and then we realize 
something's been let go of. Something has changed. Something has undergone some transformation. But there is a mystery in that process of letting go. There is a mystery in the subtlety of transformation that we cannot track and that actually we do a great favor to ourselves and we do not try to track it. What is always important, I think, is to come back again and again throughout our journey. What the point of this is actually all about? What's the point of sitting? What's the point of walking? What is the point of watching? What is the purpose, the meaning of doing this? And to remember how simple it is, is to be awake, to end pain, to end separation, to end division, to grow into the fullness of our own potential, to learn how to live as awake and conscious and compassionate human beings, and to walk in the lightness of that spirit in our world. Insight does this, it transforms us, it touches every area of our lives. Insight, though, is not difficult. Insight is easy. I have to say it is the easiest part of transformation. It is not difficult for us to see the relationship between suffering and its cause. It is not difficult for us to see the effects of grasping. If we look at the pain and the sorrow and the difficulties in our lives, it is not difficult for us to understand how it is brought about. We can see it. We can see the power of the past. We can see the power of patterns in the present. We can see the power of clinging, the power of avoidance, and we can see the effects of suffering. It is not hard for us to understand the nature of suffering. It is also actually not difficult for us to understand the path to freedom. This is actually really not difficult for us at all. If all of us were just to sit down for an hour, we we would see that our lives are our greatest teachers. Our own stories are our greatest teachers. It is not hard for us to understand the nature of suffering in any way. It is not difficult for us to understand the way to peace, the way to being clear, the way to being compassionate. But this seeing is actually simpler, obviously, than the living of what we see. It is much, it, it's very easy to be as an incredible spiritual expert in Whitley. We can be an encyclopedia, a spiritual directory of how to be free. But it is much more challenging for us to actually live in accord with our own understanding, with our own insight. And this is where transformation lies. It is difficult not to live in accord with what we know to be true. Sometimes it seems difficult to live in accord with what we know to be true. It is also difficult not to live in accord with what we know to be true. And this is often the very strange position we find ourselves in. One part of us would like to avoid, you know, because it's so much easier, it seems, to follow a path of of pleasure and, you know, avoidance and, you know, falling asleep, you know, and 
You know, there are so many ways to fall asleep. I mean, it's just endless. I mean, our culture is designed to offer us ways to be asleep. You know, it's endlessly sophisticated. But it's incredibly painful not to live in accord with what we know to be true at the same time. And the interesting thing is that when you begin to wake up, you cannot go back to sleep again. And this is the basic actuality, that when you wake up, you cannot go back to sleep again. You cannot return to patterns of avoidance or denial that were previously available to you. Awareness is something that is very hard to get rid of. This is, I feel, extraordinary phenomena. You've probably seen it here. You know, you've probably had times, you know, when you've had the most enticing fantasies offered to you. You know, have you ever had any of those that you know, something really juicy? You know, that you feel you could just really go into and it'd be really delightful. And all the time there's this little voice that says, fantasy, fantasy. You know, and it just kind of takes all the, you know, awareness just takes all the fun out of dwelling. It just takes all the joy out of indulgence. You know, it's really a drag in that way, actually, you know things that we used to dwell upon so nicely, you know, now there's this other little nagging awareness that says, you know, this is not being clear. And then someone saying to me on retreat when they were here for a long time, you know, some months, that they used to get into this trip of going to the store for chocolate. You know, they used to have this thought in the morning, you know, that I'd sit all morning, I'd do these incredibly long sittings, and then after lunch I'd go and buy some chocolate. You know, as if it was a reward for sitting so well. I said, you know, it used to torture himself all morning with this thought of chocolate. You know, they'd sit down in this lovely city and chocolate would come out. And then after lunch, after lunch, all the way to the store, you know, get his money, all the way to the store, he'd be kicking himself. You know, why am I doing this? I don't need this chocolate. You know, why am I indulging in this? Uh, you know, who's going to see me? You know, what if the teachers come out and see me buying chocolate? You know, I don't need it. I know it's not good for me. I'm just indulging in this. Uh, Kate bought the chocolate, got to the store and bought the chocolate all the way back. You know, I wish I'd restrained myself. I wish I'd stopped on my way to the store. You know, gets back with this chocolate bar, you know, after this absolute torturous journey. <laughs> you know, sits there with this chocolate bar, unable to enjoy it. You know, eating it because they'd gone through this journey and seemed to, you know, really ought to eat it, but totally unable to enjoy this chocolate bar. I, I mean, we have, you know, awareness does exact a certain price in our lives. That price is actually, you know, certainly we will go through these routines for a while, you know, and then after a while we won't even want to go to the store to buy the chocolate bar, first because we don't need the reward, and secondly because the pain is not worth it, <laughs> in it. It's simply not worth the price, you know, and this is kind of one of the lessons it takes us a little time to learn in our lives, you know, it's like kind of you know, beating your head against the wall, you know, you know, you do it a hundred times and then the next time you say, ow, oh, that hurts. And you don't want to do it anymore. It's like the lesson has been learned. And this is what, of course, awareness offers to us. It is constantly, this awareness that is difficult to get rid of is constantly offering us the opportunity to learn our own lessons. To learn our own lessons. It's 
guide our own teacher because our awareness is wise. Awareness is wise. It, it understands what is valuable. It understands, our, our own awareness understands what is true. I mean, insight comes as no surprise to us. You know, there's very few insights that are really surprising. You know, when insights come in retreats, there's more, much more usually that sense of, aha, I know this. I know this to be true. It's not a question, you know, uh, that we have to take our insights to somebody else to check them out. You know, is this true or not true? You know what I'm saying? We know this to be true. And our awareness actually is simply inviting us to learn the lessons of our own insights and teaches us that to live in accord with our insights is actually the path of peace. That to not live in accord with our understanding of what we, to be what we know to be true, what we know to be wise, is to live in a path of pain. Sometimes it takes us a little while to know this. You know, there are times when we find ourselves involved in very similar reactions that we know will bring pain and find ourselves feeling unable to step out of them. There are moments when we find ourselves saying things that we know will hurt another, and yet we want to stop and the words dribble out of our mouth. There are times when we fall into the habits of self-judgment and blame. We know this undermines us, and yet we continue to play the tape. What is happening is not a lack. It's not because there's a lack of insight or a lack of awareness. Rather, what is happening is that we are not supporting insight. That there are factors which make it, which is making it difficult for us to live in accord with our insight. The three primary factors which inhibit a life of a meditative spirit. One is the obvious one, lack of clear attention. And there's a lack of clear attention. We are basically vulnerable to the past. We have a lack of clear connection to the present. What genuinely has power for us is the past. All patterns, all authorities, all the reactions. They find a foothold in the consciousness. The second factor is the desire for the pleasant. The desire for the pleasant sensation, the desire for the pleasant experience. This is a powerful dictator in our lives. Powerful tyrant. That desire for the pleasant includes the desire for distraction, the desire for security, the desire for identity, which of course is always accompanied by aversion for what we label as being the unpleasant. The third is the factor of habit. Habit creates always a filter, a distance, keeps us apart from what is, keeps us bound to the past. The second two of the desire for the pleasant and the force of habit, of course, really can't exist without the existence of the first, the lack of clear attention. Because when that light, when the clear connection with the present moment is missing, its results are very immediate. When we are not clearly connected with what is in the present moment, with what is right now, our experience is often one of being overpowered, overwhelmed, feeling to be a slave, a victim of outer circumstances in our lives or forces within ourselves, feel imprisoned. 
When there's a lack of clear attention, we feel alienated from richness. That is the basic byproduct of a lack of clear connection. We feel alienated from the richness that connection offers to us. When we feel alienated from the richness that connection offers to us, clear connectedness, what we often experience is a vacuum, sense of there being something missing, missing in our lives and ourselves. When we feel there's something missing, we try to fill up that vacuum by pursuing the pleasant. The pleasant sensation, the pleasant experience, and so we become beggars at the sense door. Habit (coughs) is an inevitable shadow to a lack of clear connection. Habit that comes in our actions and thoughts and words, habit that comes in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see other people, when we see in the form of images. Images is habit. Images is habit. To see ourselves stuck in, in any single way, to say I am or to say another part to another person, you are, we are a prisoner of habit because nothing is has that quality of sameness. Nothing has that quality of statusness. We are bound to have it. I'd like to read you something. (coughs) I have a friend, a woman I know already many years. One day she's mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone, I know you. People jump around. They are like a ball. Robbery, they bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Robbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in. Make a little hole. It goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This likewise you could do concerning yourself. (coughs) Neither habit nor the craving or the addiction to the pleasant nor a lack of clear connection None of these are a life sentence. None of these exist without the conditions for their existence. Meditation truly is not just about sitting on cushions, putting in hours, or having a certain expertise and technique. Medita- meditative spirit is living a way in a way in which we do not condition suffering. Well, we made that choice in our lives. Through wisdom, <coughs> through understanding, through willingness that we cease to condition suffering is to create the conditions for suffering. 
ceases to be interested in creating the conditions for suffering. I think this is what it means to live in a meditative spirit. This is not something we learn necessarily through time or through more practice. This is something we learn through awareness, through our lives. And we're not willing anymore to create the conditions for suffering, for separation, for alienation. Translated in the meditative spirit, of course, I think that does mean a passion and a love of being clear, of being conscious, of being awake, of living in the spirit of our own understanding, our own insight. It is not that it's an automatic, you know, that we make that choice once and just forever. The renewal of commitment again and again, a renewal of commitment to being awake, to make time and time again in our lives. It requires patience, it requires compassion, patience to stay with the difficult, compassion for ourselves, for those moments that we fall into judgment, those moments we fall into old patterns of craving or avoidance. requires a passion for a love of clarity and peace. And passion is different than intensity. You know, to live in a meditative spirit does not mean that you have to go live in a cave, you know, or you cease to have any fun in your life. It doesn't mean that you don't have any fun anymore. It doesn't mean that you renounce enjoyment you know, or appreciation. Passion is different than intensity. Intensity is about forcing and willpower. It's about goals. It's about reaching away from this moment towards something else. Intensity is about destinations and conclusions and, and absolutes. Passion, I think, is about our relationship to now to this moment, to the people that we engage with in this moment, the relationships we form with this moment, our relationship with ourselves. Passion, I think, is something that returns us again and again to where we are that's not interested in destinations, that is much more willing to accommodate unknowing. Accommodate unfamiliarity. Accommodate mystery. Greet mystery, with a sense of willingness. Passion has it to do with a love of being clear where we are and who we are, with who we're with. It's learning to live in the spirit of what is true. This is what a meditative spirit is, learning to live in the spirit of what is true. Then we enrich that willingness, our own understanding, the world around us. Our lives become an expression of what is true, of what is genuine. We live with tremendous sincerity, dignity and integrity. When we honor not only our own well-being, when we honor the well-being of all life, when we honor the end of suffering, when we honor 
our own possibilities for being free, not in the future, but in the moment that we're in. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.